So I firmly believe that hope, hope is a muscle. So it's a thing that we flex and it's a thing that we exercise. And I think even though a lot of these poems are dark, the spaces in between are light. So it takes hope every time you get knocked down to stand back up again, or to believe that there's good at the end. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Dawn E. Morrow writes poems for people who believe they don't like poetry. Her debut collection is called The Habit of Hope. Here's what the poet Lucy Shaw had to say about Dawn. When a poet like Dawn Morrow arrives in the landscape of poetry, I am deeply grateful. Reading her fresh, vital writing, I want to celebrate the knowing craftsmanship that underlines the poems and her attention to detail. I was glad for a few minutes to sit down with Dawn Morrow. Don Morrow, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast today. I'm great. I can't wait. <laughs> so your uh, collection of poetry, The Habit of Hope, uh, just released. Um, and I'm so excited that you know I've, I've, I have seen some of these poems through the years um, and just uh, I'm so excited to see them all in one place. So congratulations. I'm proud of you. And uh, let's talk about it. Great. Uh, tell me about your, can you tell me about your, your writing journey, how you got to this point to, to where you are, you know? Absolutely, yes. Publishing so, collections of poetry. That's right. Who would have guessed? <laughs> um, I have been writing since I was tiny little. So some of my first memories are dragging this old manual typewriter into the middle of my living room <laughs> um, and plucking out stories on it. Uh -huh. Um. I kind of continued that storyteller thing all the way through elementary school, wrote for contests, um, all those things you do in elementary school. Um, I wrote my first essays in high school, and for a while I thought I was an essayist. Mm -hmm. And then at some point I was playing with magnetic poetry on my fridge, <laughs> and I put together this little poem because magnetic poetry forced me to put words together that I wouldn't otherwise. Yeah. Um, I posted it anonymously on a message board um, and a guy named Aaron Tate, who's a songwriter, saw it and asked to publish it in the little journal really? the band did every year. Um, so that was the my first foray into poetry. Um, I thought I hated poetry. At that point, I didn't know any poets that I liked. I only knew things like The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot yeah. um, and the kind of poetry that is complex and confusing that they introduce you to in high school um, until about 2013 when I was sitting under a tent listening to you and Andrew Peterson huh. talk about writing concretely at Hutchmoot. Yeah. Uh, and one of you, and I think it was Andrew, read a poem by Jeannie Murray Walker called Adam's Choice. And for the first time, I heard my own voice in a poem. Mm. And I was like, oh, I could write that. Mm. That's a thing I could write. And from there, I read everything that she wrote. Uh-huh. Uh, and then about a year and a half later, I went to Alaska with Jeannie Murray Walker uh -huh. and Lucy Shaw, where we spent a week writing poems and critiquing poems, and I just completely fell in love. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of how I moved into grad school and started writing in earnest and practicing the craft of poetry. So I never would have described myself as a poet until around that time. Yeah. 
Um, and then that, that was, uh, uh, you say grad school, that was a, a um, an MFA program at Seattle Pacific. That's correct. I did a um, low residency um, MFA at Seattle Pacific. So we would work by ourselves at home for, you know, 12 weeks mm-hmm. and then fly out twice a year for residencies for face-to-face time. Uh-huh. So I've studied under two poets who were critical and kind of shaping my abilities. Who were those two poets? Um, Jeannie Murray Walker was one of them. She's the mm-hmm. one that sucked me right into that program. And then Robert Cording, who lives up in Connecticut. He is primarily a nature poem. Or uh-huh. a nature poet. Nature poet, yeah. Yes. Um, and your your work, your what you do 40 hours a week is pretty different from poetry. Uh, you, it you is. A, sort of a bureaucratic job. Yeah, I work for the FBI. <laughs> um, and I actually run all of their medical systems right now. Uh-huh. So it's completely different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I loved what uh uh A, I love that you got a blurb from Lucy Shaw. And then I love what <laughs> Lucy Shaw said. Um she says, I love it when a poem begins with a statement of fact that evolves like a bud opening into flower so that the image is more than the sum of its parts. And then she goes on to say that that's the way your poetry feels, which good on you. Uh, but that that made me think of your poem, Moonflowers. Um, would you be willing to read Moonflowers? And let's talk about that a little bit. Absolutely. <clears throat> the Moonflowers. When summer sun dropped low enough to cast our shadows long and lean, we gathered in the neighbor's yard waiting for the moonflowers to bloom. Pavement hot against bare feet, we jumped from sidewalk onto grass, cooling our souls, rough from days of running free. Our parents drank from plastic cups of boxed red wine or bud. Summer by summer, our number dwindled, divorce and aging taking their toll. Still, every evening we watched until the little flowers quivered, loosening their buds, and the first flower shook its petals free. One by one, they popped open until an entire bouquet of white trumpets heralded their own arrival, as if announcing sometimes beauty comes at night. Mm. I love it. And, and that poem, to me, it, that, that, that poem feels so uh, central to the whole collection, right? This this memory of, well, sort of a a suburban childhood that's haunted by sadness and loss. I mean, that, that that idea that every summer the group dwindled because of divorce and because of aging and 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 yet there's still some beauty. Um you're still showing up for the beauty. Um I, I think that's that's so good. Um tell me I, the the floor is open to the, I, I just love this poem so much. I just wanted to get your additional thoughts on, on that poem. Yeah, I think this is, this memory, I think is so core to my childhood. I lived in a small neighborhood in a small town where Uh everybody knew each other. And if you did something wrong, your parents knew in about Uh seven seconds. Yeah. Um, In this neighborhood in particular, we, we gathered frequently. So there were backyard parties. Um, We had volleyball and badminton nets up in our backyard. So we were frequent gathering place. We actually put gates in the fences between mm-hmm. the backyard so we yeah. could move from yard to yard. <laughs> um, and this, and I only remember this happening 
really kind of a few years out of all the years we lived there. And for some reason, I don't know how it happened, we would all kind of wander over as the dusk settled over the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, And we would watch, and there were two eight-year-olds that year, me and one of my best friends, and we would get real close to the flowers, and we would be the ones to call out (laughs) when they were about to bloom because everybody else was wandering around chatting. Yeah. Um, And that was such a poignant moment, I think, for the neighborhood to Mm. kind of watch these little flowers, and that set the rhythm of our summers. Hmm. Um, And moonflowers, you can actually watch them pop out. You can. Yeah. You can. Yeah. It's I, I don't think there are any other flowers like that, but they mm. and they do exactly what I wrote. They quiver a little bit and then the green pistols kind of like leaves kind of open before the bud pops. Yeah. Um, well, I love that last that last line. Sometimes beauty comes at night. Um, you you the title of your collection is The Habit of Hope. Um. There's a there's a lot of sadness and grief and loss in these poems. Um, it, it you know feels like you're working through a lot of well, a lot of loss with, from you know a father leaving to a mother dying and you know, a marriage that uh, falls apart and um, and yet you call it the habit of hope. Tell me about that. I do. So I firmly believe that hope, hope is a muscle. Mm. So it's a thing that we flex and it's a thing that we um, exercise. Mm -hmm. And I think even though a lot of these poems are dark, the spaces in between are light. Mm. So it takes hope every time you get knocked down to stand back up again Um, or to believe that there's good at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, So you'll see in my collection, there are kind of these windows into that, like this poem, Mm -hmm. that kind of say, it's not always dark. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes beauty comes at night. Sometimes the doctor calls back with good news. (laughs) Um, Sometimes you find love when you're not looking for it. So I think those kind of liminal spaces in between the poems Mm. invites the reader to keep hoping with the with the speaker of the poems. What, what you said, the liminal spaces between the poems, you mean the, the white part of the page? Yes. The white part of the page spaces in between ending one poem and beginning the next kind of those pauses in between. Mm. Yeah. I think our thresholds oh. into asking the question, does yeah. it, does it get better? How does it get better? How do you keep going? Mm-hmm. I mean, all of that is the practice of the habit of hope. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that one thing that set you on your writing journey was was coming to terms with the concrete, right? That that, and I do think, as much as I love the, I'm learning to love the wasteland and um, and so much of you know, uh, T. S. Eliot's poems. Um, I have a reputation for disliking T.S. Eliot's poems, but the truth is the more I read them, the more, I, the more I like them. And yet, as you said, he's, there's, there's something abstract and very idea driven about what poets of his era did. 
Um, <clears throat> and although I'm, I'm also, the more I look at Elliot, the more I realize there's a lot of concrete in there too. Yeah. I mean, there's His imagery is super concrete. Yeah. Right. And, um, and so, but anyway, all that to say, um, I'd like to hear more about, well, it's, it's like Lucy Shaw said, you, you approach this, these poems as we start with an, a concrete image and then let it unfold from there. Um, is that, I mean, is that a fair assessment of how you do this? I think so. I love quirky little facts. So <laughs> somewhere in a poem that never quite got born is an idea that I heard on NPR that when a caterpillar changes to a butterfly, yeah. it actually like turns into goop first. Yeah. Like its yeah. whole body falls apart. Um, I, that poem wasn't quite ready to be written, but I love those weird little facts. Yeah. Um, and they show up in my book pretty consistently. Um, the other thing I think that helps do is I really like to write poems for people who don't like poetry. Mm -hmm. So I'm writing, I'm writing for my 10th grade self. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm writing for my boss at the FBI. who used to say, send me a poem. <laughs> um, I think poetry should be accessible. And I think we've moved away from that mm -hmm. in our culture, in our country into like, you need a key to unlock poetry. And I just don't think that's true. So I try to write my poems in a way that people can understand it um, on multiple levels. And I think as a poet, a lot of times you're writing about one thing. And then when I hear somebody read or reflect on a poem, I was like, that is not actually what I meant to write. And for mm -hmm. whatever reason, that's how it's working itself out. So I think there's an idea that poems are living things uh -huh. um, for the reader. I think more than any other any other genre, what the reader brings to the text is really going to influence what they leave with it. Mm -hmm. So I try, I think I start a lot of my poems very concretely because it gives the reader an in. Yeah. Yeah. I want them to be familiar with what I'm writing about. Everybody has childhood memories of a garden. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I yeah. really, I really want my poetry to be hospitable. <laughs> Yeah, I love it. Um, and I think, I mean, as you were talking, and it it, it occurs to me that one thing that that concrete imagery does, um, and and the economy of a of these little short poems, you know, almost all of your poems fit on one page. Yeah. Um, and when you resist the temptation to say, you know, to explain, to say, here's what all this means, um, the concrete image. As you said, it's hospitable insofar as it it allows a a reader to, um, uh, as you said, the, the reader brings what the reader brings to the poem, and a tomato on a vine, um, uh, that concrete image. We we all have our own meaning that that concrete image contains. Um, I'm, I'm for some reason I'm losing losing track here. Help me out. You're the poet. Um, the you know you said you started out your writing life as an essayist, and the, the job of an essayist is to is to explain in yes. in some ways, right? And I love essays, and I I love to hear the way one person is going to explain something to me. Um, and then in that explanation, I often go go straight into 
um, reaction mode, right? You've explained yeah. it this way, or you've made this argument. Therefore, now we're in an argument. And yes. uh, which is, um, again, I like that. I like that. But, uh, but these kind of poems that you're doing here are different, right? They're not, you're not saying, you're saying, check out this tomato. Yes. <laughs> and, and you do end up, you know, offering your, your ideas about what this tomato means. I'm, I'm, that, I now can't remember the name of the poem, but there's there's a, a really lovely there's poem. There's a couple, there. yeah, there's a couple of tomato yeah. poems in there. Yeah. And um, but again, Lucy's the way Lucy Lucy Shaw put it is you start with the image. And yes, you do get around to sort of interpreting that tomato for me. But but first you give me the tomato. And I bring my own, you know, ideas about tomatoes to that. Yeah. I think when I think about writing, if I want to convince you of something, I'm going to write an essay because essays argue with your head. Uh Um, The first book we read, we read when I was in the program at SPU is a book by Carl Dennis called Poetry is Persuasion. Mm -hmm. I mean, it sets out an argument that um, poems still are making an argument, Mm -hmm. but I would say poetry argues with your soul. It argues (laughs) with your heart. Yeah. Uh, so when I'm putting forth a tomato and explaining to you, like, I had a bumper crop, and maybe that's all I'll ever have, but I did have a bumper crop at one point. Yeah. Um, there's going to be something that resonates in your yeah. in your emotional core, and uh-huh. I don't think essays do that. I think that's why I kind of got away from essays. I still write essays sometimes, mm-hmm. um, but I feel like. For me, I'd rather work at that soul kind of heart mm-hmm. level, yeah, than the head. And also, frankly, I don't have a lot of patience, so it takes a lot more <laughs> takes a lot more time to write an essay. Like yeah. I can write a poem in a sitting if I've thought <laughs> about it for a while. Yeah, yeah. Um, so some of it's just the way I'm wired, mm-hmm. but I do think I think poetry makes us have to reflect. So when you're reading a poem, you're not building a counter argument. You're mm-hmm. letting the poet seep in to yeah. kind of who you are. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, again, I, I love essays because you said they work at your head. I've, I've got a head and I like to have my head engaged. Right. Yes. And so uh, I think we can admire both of these forms without denigrating the other. Yeah. They have different purposes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we, I think we need them both just like we also need, story novel narrative mm-hmm. yeah do you um okay I'm, I'm putting you on the spot now um and if we need to if, if you can't come up with an example we can cut this out but what is a what is a poem that has sort of uh argued with your heart or with your soul that has changed the way you think about something um i don't know if it's changed the way i thought about something but it definitely kind of let me put things I had thought more into words. Um, there's a poem by Ada Limon called How to Triumph Like a Girl. Okay. And she is a Kentucky poet. She's now our poet laureate. Okay. Um, and she is a looking at a racetrack. Mm-hmm. And she's talking about the lady horses. And she's the, her first line of the poem is, I like the lady horses best. <laughs> um, and she talks about how they like run kind of differently than the male horses and mm-hmm. then she brings it back to herself and says, I like to think 
that I have, if you lifted my shirt, you would see a horse sized heart beating Mm. within me. And I feel like it had kind of brought together a lot of things I've been thinking about, about being a woman, about Uh um, Aiden Lamone also does not have any children. Mm -hmm. So she writes from that perspective. Mm -hmm. So I think her, I clearly remember when I was reading that Mm. poem, it jumped up on my Twitter feed or my Insta feed and Uh I was captured immediately. Like that first line is brilliant. Yeah. uh, That's great. Say it again. I I like the lady horses best. (laughs) It's her first line. That is so good. Um, Well, speaking of, uh, you have a poem called Headstrong, which I didn't warn you about. Uh, And I I immediately, when you started talking about the the Lady Horses poem, I I went straight to your your Headstrong poem. And um, I'm going to read part of your poem back to you. How about that? That's great. Um, I love I love what you do with with the wordplay here. Bullheaded. So so you, the poem starts out talking about somebody describes you as headstrong, and and you say you know is this bossy? Is this emotional? You know what what does that what does that mean? And then then you end with this image. Bullheaded was the word my babysitter used when I refused to yield. I pictured great horns budding just above my ears. The kids around me falling silent, awed by my emerging strength. Um. I love that so much. I, I and I love what you, the way you flip that. You know, bullheaded is, is a, uh, you know, not a positive descriptor of somebody. And you, you know, and uh, I, I love it. Um, yeah, that, I love that little poem because it was so true. I was walking to work with my buddy. Um, and we joke now that he's the only, he's my only coworker that has a poem in the book. <laughs> it's, not, it's not particularly attractive for him. Yeah, right. Um, but he said something about me being um, headstrong. And uh-huh. I stopped walking in the streets of Washington, D.C. And I looked at him and I said, I can't help but wonder if you would call me headstrong if I were a man. Yeah. And he also stopped and he thought about it. And he was like, I, th- I think I would. Uh-huh. Um, so that really opened up a conversation between us yeah. on kind of how we describe men and women yeah. using words that can be loaded sometimes on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, so that little poem kind of got born yeah. on the corner, on the corner of Washington, DC. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I'm glad, I'm glad it got born. It's, it's so good. And I, I, I love Again, that that idea of I, I think I will, you know, speaking of a poem that that sort of changes the way you see things, I, I think I will henceforth um, when I hear the the word bullheaded, think about that little girl who yeah. imagines uh, the horn sporting, sprouting and, and everybody being in awe. Um, that's it's so good. I love it. Um, OK, I'm going to I'm going to float something that I want to hear you talk about. So good luck with this question. <laughs> um, before we started recording, you you were talking about the idea that you you think systematically. We weren't talking about poetry. We were talking about other areas of life and um, and that you think in systems. Um, so, you know, when it comes to solving problems, 
you can jump in and solve a little problem or you can back up and think what's the what is what's the bigger systemic problem and how do I um help solve that and i'm i'm curious to know if that kind of systemic problem solving or thinking about problems as systems has impacted the way you write um i i really think it does and i think I think the way it plays out in my writing is as I move through the world, I kind of pick up little bits and pieces mm-hmm. and stick them in my pocket for later. Mm-hmm. And then I put them all together like a puzzle. So you'll see very disparate images in my in my poems kind of come together. So you'll see a story about um, kind of going home mm-hmm. and finding place by finding the shadow of an old fish pond that I used to go drop bread in with my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next image is the dredge down at the beach. And those mm-hmm. are such disparate images. Like one is very, the beginning images are very homey. They're very grounded. They're very kind of familiar. And then the dredge out on the beach is this kind of industrial image. So I mm-hmm. feel like that some of that systems thinking is pulling all of those pieces that look like they don't fit together mm-hmm. into one poem. So we move in another poem from like tomatoes to hearts. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm always looking for those threads. I don't even know necessarily that I've collected them until I sit down to write. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, again, to return to this idea of unfold, to start with an image and unfold, um, it, it feels like some of these images you're you're seeing how they fit into a a system right it, yes the temptation sure. is to or and, and temptation that's too negative but you know one way to approach this is to to really zero in on the image and another is just to back up a little bit and say how does this image fit into um you know a larger system of meaning, which is, I mean, that's what metaphor is, right? It's, it's acknowledging that these things that we see in the world um, fit into something. The, yeah. the similarities between things, disparate things, exist because they. We we observe them. We don't we don't make metaphors. We observe metaphors because they all participate in a in a, the same system of meaning, and so they they rhyme with one another. Yeah, my I think that's interesting. I think my poems always zoom out. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of poets who do the opposite. And I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things that made me not connect uh-huh. with poetry like that. Elizabeth Bishop is an observer and she observes these crazy minute little details. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I read her work, I'm like, that is not, I can't, I can't do this. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Like she is not a poet. I love her work, but she does not resonate with me in uh-huh. the same way in Ada Limon does uh-huh. and i think limon does the same thing where she pulls back uh-huh. and looks at the world more and more broadly yeah no i i love that you that you are thinking about what you can do and what you what you can't i mean i'm not saying you can't do what elizabeth bishop does but it's helpful to know here's what i do and lean yes. into that here's my patch of ground and i'm glad we got elizabeth bishop over here doing this but dawn's doing this yeah, that is okay. not that kind of detailed observation is not my native tongue. Uh-huh. Um, and I think I tell people when they read poetry to look for those 
Ada Limon. So they're going to kind of resonate with mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. The poets where you think, or the writing, I think in general, where you think, oh, I could do that. Those are the poets that have a similar voice or the writers that have a similar voice. And when I'm talking mm-hmm. to people about writing, that's one of the things I say is pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. You're reading it and you think, oh, I could do that. Like you, that's something that's a, that's a flare. Mm-hmm. So pay attention there because that's the thing that's going to teach you most about kind of how you write. Yeah. The things you want to write about. Um, I, I should think that doing an MFA program would help with that because you have to read so much. Yeah, I did. That's where, that's where I found Adia Lamone. It's where I found most of my favorite poets. Mm-hmm. Um, Tony Hoagland taught me a ton about wordplay. Mm-hmm. Um, which he is a master and I am not, but he definitely, <laughs> um, he definitely taught me about that. Robert Pinsky is a master of kind of meter and uh-huh. rhythm, which I was very weak in. I read a ton of his work. Uh-huh. Um, so I think forcing yourself out of the um, things you're, you just kind of read naturally is mm-hmm. super helpful in picking up those little pieces. Yeah. Um, earlier this week, I, I, recorded a conversation with Drew Bratcher um, and this, I'm not sure if this, this episode is going to be a week. It, it, it doesn't matter. I, I think, I think that episode will have already uh, aired by the time yours does. And, um, but I got, I got on the subject uh, with him. I got on the subject with the MFA program. Cause um, so I'd like to hear your reflections on um I mean, I've acknowledged this because I don't usually talk about MFA programs, and here we are, you know, twice in one week. So um, tell me about, are, you know, I, I get the impression you're really glad you did the MFA. Um, and tell me about, because sometimes people ask me about, you know, MFAs. I n- never know what to say. So give us the uh, the case for um, what, you know, why it's a good thing and or why it's not, what, what it's good for yes. and what it's not good for. Absolutely, because I don't think MFAs are the answer for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I am super undisciplined. Undisciplined mm-hmm. in my writing. I don't set time aside for it. I think you were the person. It was either you or Lucy who told me to put my butt in the chair and write. I think it might have been you. Um, I've told people that before, yes. It's Yeah, I think that came from you. <laughs> um, so I, I needed, I really needed the structure and the deadlines. Like I love a good deadline. Mm-hmm. I applied for my first grad school experience when I got an MBA with 29 seconds to spare. And I was like, oh, I'm early. Uh, my mom <laughs> to stop calling her because she couldn't take it anymore. So I think that's really that structure was super important. Um, I do not have a background in English. I have a background in engineering and business. Uh-huh. So it also forced me to just read widely. Um, we were required to finish 60 books. I finished more than that because I had to write a long critical paper, which was our thesis, mm-hmm. like our kind of academic thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, so I need really needed that structure. Um, the bonus for me was that I met a group of people that I'm still in touch with um, almost daily. Some of them hmm. who I kind of write with and reflect with and talk about life with and, yeah. um, and really kind of, they understand poetry the same way I do because we were taught Mm -hmm. by the same people. Mm -hmm. Um, So it gives us a common language to talk about. 
poetry with. So I know if I workshop with them, we're always going to structure the workshop the same way because we were taught to workshop by the same people. Uh Um, And I think that community is important. And the MFA, some MFA programs are a shortcut to that. Yeah, right. But I for sure don't think it's necessary by Mm -hmm. any means. Yeah. Unless you're a very lazy, undisciplined writer like me. All right. There is a, a a recurring theme in your um, in this collection. There there are many recurring themes, but one I'm interested in talking about before we run out of time, which we which we soon will, is the idea that you are um, the uh, you know you're the only daughter of an only daughter. Um, at one point, I think you you say, you know, you're the last leaf on the family tree and you are in this collection are passing along stories that were passed along to you. Um, and, you know, you, you see yourself as the steward of these stories for which there's nobody left to tell some of these stories. Um, and. Um, and you, you also talk about coming coming to terms with the the idea that you're not going to have children. Um, and so it's hard not to, you know, a, a, an image that, that, you know, comes up implicitly and explicitly a time or two is that these, these poems, you know, it might, I don't want to be flippant and say, these are your children, but, but they're, they, these are your, they are your offspring. They, they are the, you know, and, and they are doing what, you're doing in this book what what people do, you know, in in terms of in families keeping stories alive. Um, and I, this is I'm going to read the last stanza of the last poem of yeah. your book. I would I, I would get you to do it, but I know you don't have a copy of the book with you, so because um, mm-hmm. you're not at home, you're in a hotel room. It's and, true. Uh, <clears throat> and so um, so I'm going to read this to you, and I just. So I guess I'm. Uh, this is a. I should have said spoiler alert because this is the last. This is the end of the book. But um, I just I love this so much. You said even when I because you're talking about being on a train, right? Aren't yeah, sorry, yeah, 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 yeah. Tundra. Yeah, that's the last word. Yeah, you're in the last tundra. Even when I'm gone, leaving no one to trade my family stories, I will still be here in footprints and dust in the lungs of the woman reading your book next to me on the train. Um, I think that's a really, you know, there's a lot of hope there. <laughs> there's, yeah. there's the, there's the habit of hope. Um, so can you talk to me about that? That I gave you a list of poems I wanted to talk about, and then I've talked about other poems. So I'm sorry. Oh, that's all right. I know my poetry. Yeah. Um, so this poem, this poem was actually written over over a bit of time, it wasn't written. I typically kind of gather all my images and write in one big. So I'd already had the image. The poem begins with the image of us walking through the tundra of Alaska. And the guide told us, don't stand in one place too long or the ground um, will basically take your footprint forever. So 500 Mm -hmm. years later, somebody walked through and your footprint's still there. So they didn't Mm -hmm. want us to leave those marks Mm -hmm. in the tundra. So that's the initial image. And then I was driving somewhere and NPR was talking about how we slough our skin cells off. Like every seven years, all of our skin cells have regenerated. Um, 
and they just kind of float through the air yeah, as okay. dust, which means we're breathing it in. It's landed on our tables. Um, oh, so man, that's, something, that's gross. Something of it, it only is gross, but something <laughs> about those two images of the yeah. kind of world collecting us uh, in our yeah. stories and our lives were um, too much to pass up. So I stuck yeah. them together in one poetry poem thinking about um, the things we leave behind mm -hmm. and the ways we leave marks on the world when we don't even mean to. Yeah, yeah. And then sometimes we leave marks in the world on purpose, like this book. Yes. Yes. This, I think this book, um, I don't have any children. I do have 15 godchildren. Mm. Um, and I think part of this book was for them to have. Yeah. They are almost all named in my acknowledgments, mm. um, except for the one who, nope, I think all of them are in there. <laughs> um, so I think this is really it's a gift to people who don't like poetry, but it's also a gift to them mm -hmm. because they're now part of my story, even if they're not yeah. children by birth. Yeah, um, yeah, And yeah. I thought about them a lot as I wrote this mm. and kind of what I wanted to leave for mm -hmm. them. Yeah. I love that idea of acknowledging the people for whom like it's you're giving something to them, but also they gave something to you by being people for you to give something to. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think as a writer, if I'm not thinking about who I'm writing for, my writing is going to be less generous. Hmm. Um, it's going to be tighter. It's not mm -hmm. going to be, it, it's not going to be as hospitable. And I keep mm -hmm. going back to that word because I really, I'm passionate about hospitable hospitality and try to bring that into my life. But mm -hmm. I really think my writing is is part of that. Yeah. Uh, and I think if I'm thinking about the people, I really want to be part of this space uh -huh. and I write for them that that's going to be, it's going to serve my poems better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, great. Well, I, I'm so glad that you've, you've put these things together for those people and for the rest of us too. All right. I've been looking forward because you've kind of already answered this this question, but I'm going to give, let you keep answering it. Who are the writers that make you want to write? Yes. Um, Ada Lamone, 100 yep. percent. Um, Natasha Trethaway was a former poet laureate okay. out of Chicago. Um, she writes a lot of books about her Southern upbringing, which heavily okay. influenced my work. Um, and Jeannie Murray Walker, I go back to all the time. Jeannie uses very clear language. Um, she was really my invitation into poetry. Yeah. So if I get stuck, I go back to her. So I think those three poets in particular are things, people I go back to. Um, there's a Jericho Brown book hanging out on my, on my um, nightstand. I go back mm -hmm. to him fairly mm -hmm. frequently because of the way he looks at the world and he is unashamed in the way he talk, he talks about hard things and he is mm -hmm. not does not back away from that. So he's been, there's some work in my book that's heavily influenced mm. by him. Uh -huh. um, so there's, there's always poetry hanging around my house. Yeah. Stacked up on nightstands by my bed in my craft room, <laughs> everywhere. There's a, yeah. everywhere you can find it. Yeah. Well, Dawn, um, thank you for being here. I'm, I'm, I, I love what you've done here in the habit of hope. 
and um, congratulations. And uh, thank you. Great job. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.